Pope Francis issued a directive earlier this year clamping down on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. Could more restrictions pertaining to other sacraments be on the way? Dr. Peter Kwasniewski and Father Jerry Murray are here with analysis. What was it like growing up in the home of a television comedy icon, Kelly Conway, daughter of the late great Tim Conway, will tell us She'll also share her new book, My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad. Finally, Fox News personalities Rachel and Sean Duffy share their favorite Christmas traditions and their new book, The World Over, begins right now. Welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We've got a great show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. I want to dive right in. On July 16th, Pope Francis issued a bombshell of a law titled Traditiones Custodes. Uh, it placed restrictions on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. The edict revoked the wide permission to celebrate the extraordinary form of the Mass granted 13 years ago by Pope Benedict XVI. According to a report in the Catholic blog Rorate Celi, the Congregation for Divine Worship is set to release, during Christmas week no less, a new instruction on the implementation of that papal law. It would outlaw all sacramental rites celebrated according to the pre-Vatican II Missal. Here to help us unpack what this could mean, I'm joined by a liturgical expert and senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Thank you both for being here. Gentlemen, um, I want to start with, uh, on October 7th, the Vicar of Rome banned priests from traditional communities from celebrating all sacraments, except the Eucharist, rather, according to the 1962 Missal in that diocese, in the Diocese of Rome. If the Congregation for Divine Worship issues its letter next week, it would appear that the rules of the Diocese of Rome would be extended worldwide. Cardinal Angelo de Donatis writes, it is no longer possible to use the Roman ritual and the other liturgical books of the ancient rite for the celebration of sacraments and sacramentals, e.g. the ritual of, for the reconciliation of penitence according to the ancient form. The use of the other ordinaries, uh, therefore, is currently expressly forbidden and only the use of the Missale Romanum of 1962 remains permitted. Moreover, all priests, diocesan or religious, who wish to continue to avail themselves of the faculty of celebrating according to the Missale Romanum of 1962 in the territory of the Diocese of Rome, must first be authorized in writing by the diocesan bishop. Uh, Dr. Kwasniewski, I want to start with you. These restrictions are pretty tough and explicit. Why crack down on the Diocese of Rome like this? And do you think this was done with papal approval? Yes, it, it is It is an extremely harsh measure. 
um, and uh, not to say extremely unpastoral uh, and and cruel to these to these Catholics in Rome, who simply want to worship uh, in the traditional way that the church worshipped. Um, I mean, you would think. Uh, whatever nourishes these good people, whatever brings them to the sacraments, you know, that's that's wonderful in a world where where sacramental participation is rapidly uh, dropping everywhere. But that's not the way mm-hmm. these ideologues think. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think what this decree in Rome was, was a trial balloon. Let's see if we can prohibit as much as possible uh, of the traditional rights and, and get away with it. Um, I, I wonder if the trial balloon was meant to last longer, but fears mm-hmm. over uh, how long we're going to have Pope Francis in office are, you know, are driving this this campaign uh, to to move very rapidly. Mm. Father Jerry, reports suggest that the Vatican's about to issue these Roman restrictions worldwide. Uh, this restricts the bishop's autonomy, it seems to me. What happened to the synodal church uh, accompanying the people of God? Well, that's a good question, Raymond, and I share uh, Dr. Gwarzniewski's uh, perspective on this. This is not a pastoral way to deal with a group of Catholics who uh, are for legitimate reasons attached to the form of worship which existed essentially in the church uh, from, you know, the three or four hundreds. So the Roman Mass and then the accompanying sacramental rites are of great antiquity mm-hmm. and great beauty. And, you know, it's mystifying. These are the rites that were used when Pope Francis himself uh, had his vocation. It was, they were the rites used during the Second Vatican Council. Uh, in other words, they've been the rites that have had a, a glorious history of producing you know, the life of the church in a very abundant and holy way. There is a hostility based on what, you know, we would call the idea that Second Vatican Council eliminated everything that came before it. And the last two popes, mm-hmm. uh, John Paul II and Pope Benedict, have vigorously fought that idea. Uh, so, you know, local bishops uh, had uh, uh, basically, after Traditionis Custodes, they had very little authority anymore uh, because Rome was issuing this restriction. Uh, for instance, Rome said that the, they can't celebrate the Tridentine Mass in a parish church. Unfortunately, canon law provides that exceptions can be made, but Rome is signaling its intent that there's no room in your parish for this form of the Mass, even though many bishops were very happy to have that Mass and serving you know, yep. quite a large number of faithful, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. And, and we should say, and I've done kind of a, a non-scientific survey of how this is landing, certainly in the United States and in parts of Europe, the, the bishops seem, for the most part, to be sort of going on with business as usual. These Latin masses are still available in the parish setting, and they've granted what you just said, exceptions to this Roman rule. Uh, The Diocese of Rome has also banned the Easter Tridium, according to the 1962 Missal. Dr. Kwaknevsky, the the cardinal says these rules are uh, as well as, as uh, the Pope's motu proprio, are for the spiritual good of the faithful. Was the spiritual good of the faithful ever in jeopardy as the result of the, the use of traditional Latin mass? Where's the evidence I mean, for that? It, it's, it's really, it's quite absurd because, I mean, yes, there are certainly, uh, there are certainly Catholics out there who have serious problems with the Second Vatican Council, um, who have all kinds of theological uh, issues, but the, the vast majority of the people who are going to the old rites simply love them. 
uh, as, as, Father, as Father Murray said, because they're beautiful, because they're holy, because they're awe-inspiring, um, because mm-hmm. they, you know, they, they seem to really, uh, they catechize in their own way, in a very powerful way. Mm-hmm. Um, they love it because these things are of the Catholic faith and for the Catholic faith. Um, so I, I really actually think there's, there's something deeply disturbing and problematic and doubtful about all of these kinds of moves, beginning with Traditiones Custodes mm. and going into this vicariate decision. And if there is such a thing uh, in the lovely season of Christmas uh, that we're looking forward to or not looking forward to, I mean, th- there's a real question here about, are these things actually an attack on the common good of the church? Um, and the reason I put mm. it that way is that, uh, you know, if you attack tradition, if you attack the Catholic faithful, if you attack our past and our heritage, what does that say about your vision of the church and of Catholicism? Is that mm-hmm. coherent? Is it even coherent with Vatican mm-hmm. II? Vatican II was very clear that it, it wanted right. to be in continuity with Trent and Vatican I and so on and so forth. You can read this right in the documents of the council, which which the mm-hmm. progressives typically ignore. They like to ignore what the, what the documents actually say. And yes, there are problems in those documents, but we can debate about this. We can have an intelligent, charitable discussion of what went right and what went wrong with the council, that's not a reason yeah. for suddenly cracking down and saying, you can't celebrate Easter with a Latin mass. I mean, that's that's an absurdity. Yeah. Father Jerry, what are the canonical problems you see with this Roman instruction for the diocese of Rome? And, and what are the canonical problems in extending these rules globally? Well, I guess the canonical problem in a basic one is that um, the spiritual good of the faithful is the primary purpose of canon law. It's to promote access to the sacraments, to hearing the word of God, to exercising the works of charity. So anything that restricts mm-hmm. a spiritual good without a clear and uh, evident reason uh, has to be uh, said, this is not a good change. Uh, now, on a specific mm-hmm. level, uh, forbidding the sacraments is going to affect parishes run by the Fraternity of St. Peter and the Institute of Christ the King and others. And those right. groups have that right according to their constitutions, which are papally approved. So the Vicariate of Rome is not in a position to stop that. Uh, we also have now, as you may remember, Pope ba- Francis in trying to reunite with the followers of Archbishop Lefebvre. He granted their priests the right to hear confession and to witness marriages. So now, you know, are mm-hmm. they going to withdraw that? I mean, that's certainly not been said, but you would be in the strange position where, let's say, a priest of the Fraternity of St. Peter who pledged fealty to Rome, he's denied something that the Lefebvreite priests are able to do. I hope that's not going to happen, but the logic of this mm-hmm. thing is all mixed up, and uh, it's going to cause a lot of problems. Think of the ordinary person whose father or mother dies and says, well, I, we attended Latin Mass for the last 20 years. We'd like to have a funeral in that rite. Right. Are we going to be told, oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's going to be restricted? Uh, what about marriages celebrate? Couples been preparing. Yes. You have a lot of families grew up with this mass. Suddenly they're told, I'm sorry, you can't have that beautiful ritual anymore. Makes no sense on the spiritual level and canonically, lots of problems. Okay. Tell me quickly about Canon 18, uh, about the cancellation of a sacrament. Yeah, well, you know, when you are depriving people of rights or restricting the exercise of freedoms that have previously existed, it has to be done for a good reason. It has to be evidently the intent of the lawmaker. And nowhere in Traditionis mm-hmm. Custodes does it specifically say all sacraments apart from the Eucharist are now forbidden. That's a conclusion that's being drawn, partly because Pope Francis wrote a letter in which he said the goal of Traditionis Custodes is that everyone return to the uh, Mass of Paul VI. 
But the Pope also told the French bishops and another group of bishops in, uh, at Limina visit that he's mm -hmm. that this is a not it's not an elimination it's a restriction. So which restrictions? Yeah. Who decides? What level? This all has to be sorted out. Dr. Kwasniewski, uh, you're a liturgist. I want you to tell me and explain to the audience um, the evolution of the mass of the so-called mass of Vatican II. Okay, it seems to me. John Paul II, Benedict, was part of realizing the full maturation of what was intended by the Council Fathers in Vatican II. And that that, that doesn't—we can't suddenly erase all of that, the, the, the 50 years in between, and revert to some imaginary uh, Vatican II mass tethered, ripped away from the thing upon which it stands. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I would put it this way. I would say that um, if you read the debates during the Second Vatican Council, and they, they make for fascinating reading, and they should be more available than they are, um, you'll find that the majority of the bishops were asking for small changes to the liturgy, not major changes, not the kind of magnitude of changes that actually happened in the mid to late 60s or mid to mid 60s, mid 70s. Um, so they were asking for small changes, for example, some vernacular along with Latin, some mm -hmm. other kinds of music along with Gregorian chant. It was always a both and kind of model. Right. Um, and, and after the council, even while the council was finishing, uh, there were some pretty radical people. Um, I mean, obviously, Anabali Bunini was one of them. He's the most famous name, kind of a household name for those who are interested in these subjects. But there were many quite radical people who took, you know, they were given an inch and they took a mile or 10 miles or however many mm -hmm. miles they, they took. Um, and, and so what I would I would put it like this. The Missal of Paul VI has this fundamental weakness that it can be taken in a lot of different directions, almost by design. So it can be taken in a kind of high, in, a, in, a, in an oratorian, Benedictine direction with chant and incense and ad orientum and so on. Or it can be taken in what they like to call a highly enculturated direction with bongo drums yeah. and and you know and and dancing and all kinds of things. That's possible. Mm -hmm. That's you know, and and so what what I think you saw with John Paul II, who came from a conservative country with a conservative liturgical reform, uh, and Pope Benedict, who had such a deep love for the liturgical heritage of the Church, what the two of them mm -hmm. were trying to do was to give the Novus Ordo its best possible uh, interpretation or application right. or implementation. Um, but all the while, we have to recognize that there was al there's always been a current of people who have wanted to take things in a quite different direction. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that what we're seeing now is there's a whole coterie of people who are trained at the Pontifical Athenaeum of Sant'Anselmo uh, in Rome. Um, Andrea Grillo is, is probably the most well-known of them, but uh, Archbishop Roach mm -hmm. is connected with them as well. And there are quite a few of them now working in the Vatican. And they are all mm -hmm. diehard progressives 1960s progressives they they want to see the radical mm. enculturation and the diversity and the creativity and the spontaneity and all these sorts of things that that's why they 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 seem to reject not only the traditional latin rites uh, but also they reject traditional elements in the novus ordo right they they re, mm. they, they would want to reject ad orientem for example uh, and they might even they might even falsely say that's against the council. But the council never said anything about that. There was no intention right. of changing the direction of the priest. Right, right. No, he was turned around. As you said, the experimentation was already underway before the documents were, 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 were printed. I mean, the, the, it was happening in real time. And it seems 
we have a group now in charge who are attempting to create, recreate that experimental period and erase the last 50 years of reform and clarification of what was really intended in Vatican II. Uh, Father Jerry, the Vatican seems to be treating the old right as if it's a virus in need of destruction. The 1962 missile apparently needs to be contained so it doesn't spread and affect the faithful. Your thoughts? Well, the effect of having the traditional Latin Mass celebrated freely uh, for the last, let's say, almost 30 years or 25 years has been a flourishing of that Mass. Lots of vocations, uh, new religious institutes were founded. Uh, I know from my own experience celebrating that Mass, some of the most devout and attentive Catholics around are those that go to the old Mass. So this is mm -hmm. not, uh, this hasn't been a, a negative and deficit. And by the way, it also helped a lot of people who followed Archbishop Lefebvre to come back into full unity with the church. So it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a movement in the life of the church that has produced, in my estimation, and by the way, a large percentage of the bishops who were surveyed on this matter uh, prior to Traditionis Custodis being issued, a lot of them said positive or non-condemnatory uh, things. They said, well, I may not celebrate it myself, but the people love it and we have priests to do it. Right. So, in the, in the end, what we have here is a group of people, and the Pope himself does not like the old Mass. He's made it evident that he's not really in favor of it. And that group mm -hmm. uh, has influenced the Pope, and he has sent them out. And right now, if you were a seminarian fraternity of St. Peter, you're not quite sure where your future lies, because what you grew up right. with and what you love is now, as you say, being treated like a virus. It's not a virus. It's a healthy sign mm -hmm. of love, fidelity, and faith. Well, I, I agree with you, and I, I, I reject and am very upset by the reportage on this. It's one thing if there's a real hue and cry from bishops around the world. It's quite another if you've sort of misrepresented their statements and the intention of Benedict XVI, who still breathes, by the way, and has said he didn't uh, create some more pontificum granting greater use of the Latin to bring the Lefebvreites back in. He did it to, to, to lift the Novus Ordo and lift the Mass so that side by side the extraordinary and ordinary forms of the Mass could enrich one another. Before I run out of time, Doctor, um, how should the faithful respond if this new, much more restrictive instruction comes from the Vatican next week vis-a-vis -vis the Latin Mass, the traditional Latin Mass? So I, I think, I mean, this is a, that's a big question, So I know, I, but I'll just try to yep. say a few points quickly. Uh, first of all, we need to keep praying for the Holy Father and, and the bishops because they, have, they, they, they will incur uh, a, a lot of wrath if they, and a lot of disunity and a lot of, 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 of mm. pain and, and anguish uh, if they actually go through with this. Um, but we also, I think the faithful need to, and the priests do need to remain firm in their commitment to the liturgical heritage of the church. It, it, it must be something good and holy um, because the church has used it for so many centuries and has praised it for so many centuries. Um, so I think they, the, the faithful will need to, to, to be strong. They'll need to write to their local bishops and, and talk to them, let them know, um, you know, we're praying for you. We really hope that you'll do everything possible to support us. Um, but, you know, I, I also think that it's a, situ it's a serious enough situation that we really have to say um, we may be dealing with some serious canonical breaches and over 
overreaches of what uh, authority is actually capable of doing. And this gets into some, mm. some big theological questions about whether, the, you know, this is like an autoimmune disease where the church, the body of the church is attacking itself, right? Uh, and mm. we, we need to, yeah. to be able to see that there are times when we have to say, no, non possumus, we cannot do that. That's, that's what I think the fraternity and the institute, fraternity of St. Peter, Institute of Christ the King, um, and other such groups will say, they'll say when, the, when this decree comes out, non possumus, we cannot do this, we're not able to do this. Think it over again, come up with a different proposal, but we're not following this. We can't follow this in good conscience. Mm. Father Jerry, your reaction? Yes, well, you know, of course, we wait to get the document in hand, and then as a good canon lawyer, mm -hmm. I'll read it and I'll say, well, the local bishop has this power to give this exemption and this dispensation, and we can do this and that, but that doesn't solve the universal mm -hmm. problem. I think uh, the doctor is correct. This will cause a lot of upsetness in the life of the church, but upsetness in and of itself is not bad. It's like the central nervous system. You know, when you have an infection or you get a cut on your arm, you know, there's pain, but right. pain is a sign that we want, we're seeking health. So the best thing to do is, you know, we're in the synodality period in the church now. The voice of the people has to be heard. People are meant to contribute. Uh, the Latin mass people and priests and bishops have to say, well, the synod has to include this topic. Why is it that some people in the church are treated as second-class citizens for simply loving the mass that was celebrated by countless popes and saints over the centuries? There's no logical reason why they shouldn't be able to celebrate that same mass. Yeah, Father Jerry, before we go, I must get your thoughts on this. We, we discussed this last week, um, New Ways Ministries, uh, which is a very controversial group uh, a Vatican official at the General Secretariat for the Synod of Bishops has apologized um, to this group, New Ways. Now, they've been condemned previously by the bishops of the United States and Rome. Now, the, the, the Vatican removed them from a website for the Synod. Now, they've put them back on and apologized to them as well as to the LGBT community. Your reaction to this story? Well, we're learning something here about what the synodal process means, uh, in, at least in the eyes of the people in the office of the synod. The synod is supposed to be, how do we propose and enliven the faith of the Catholic Church and her people in, in the face of modern challenges? You know, walking together is supposed to be walking together with Christ first. Now we find mm -hmm. that dissenters, people who reject church teaching, uh, the New Ways Ministry condemned uh, the Vatican's issuance of that no blessing of same-sex unions uh, document. So a group that con is condemning something that the church does to defend her teaching is now being given a platform to pr promote its false teachings. And these false teachings have to do with grave immorality. The church loves everyone. If they have problems with homosexual attraction, love does not include saying, by the way, you get exempted from the moral law, you can commit any act you want, and we're not going to say it's wrong. We don't do that. The Catholic Church owes allegiance to Christ. His teaching is unchangeable, unchangeable. The moral law doesn't change with the calendar date. So for the Vatican to permit this video to go up is a sign that they're not being the, safeguard, the, the guardians and safeguarders of Catholic orthodoxy. Without Catholic orthodoxy, the Synod is going to be a disaster because it's not meant to mm. be the grievance lobby of every dissenter being given a microphone to condemn church teaching and say, Jesus would never say this. Jesus Christ, the eternal truth, has already spoken. The church for 2,000 years is not mistaken. Sodomy is a mortal sin. Mm. Those that promote mortal sin should not be given a platform to do so from an official pulpit of the church. 
Dr. Kwasniewski, I'll give you the last word, uh, 30 seconds. I think I think what we're what what Father Murray is saying is is quite true. That that we're seeing a period in which those who are supposed to be the guardians and defenders and promoters of tradition and orthodoxy, uh, and the, you know the true, the good, and the beautiful, they are not living up to their their job in the church. They're not living up up to their role, uh, and so it, that doesn't mean we walk away in despair. That means we have to. Uh, we have to, you know, double down and we have to do all that we can to uphold the teaching of the church and her traditions. Father Gerald Murray, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, I thank you both for being with me. Merry Christmas to you both. <laughs> Kelly Conway is up next. But first, The Spider Who Saved Christmas book tour is coming to a close, sadly. I've had such a great time seeing so many of you all on the road. My final stop is this Saturday. December 18th at Veritas Books in Houston, Texas at 11 a.m. I would love to see you there. I'll sign copies of the books. We'll have a great time, tell stories. They make great Christmas gifts. Visit RaymondArroyo.com for the date and locations. We will see you there. Now, Tim Conway was a true show business legend. He made us laugh for well over 50 years. From his start on The Gary Moore Show to McHale's Navy to his 11-year run on The Carol Burnett Show, he was a beloved national treasure. My next guest is the eldest of Tim's seven children, and she's here to tell us what it was like to grow up with a comedy legend. She's written a brand new book about her experience called My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad, Growing Up with Tim Conway in the Funniest House in America. And of that, I have no doubt. Please welcome from Los Angeles, <laughs> Kelly Conway. Kelly, thanks for being with me. Uh, I had the pleasure, as I told you a little earlier, of interviewing your dad twice, visited him several times thereafter. Um, look, I know a lot of actors and comedians. The sunny side that you often see on TV or in public isn't quite what the family gets at home. Was Tim Conway mm -hmm. as fun and lovable as the characters we saw him play on TV? If it's possible, I think it was more, honestly. He just, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't change on the drive home, you know? He was, it was a fun-filled circus uh, activity house forever. He, um, he was exactly how you, how you think he would be. He was always delightful and fun and self-deprecating and hilarious every <laughs> time I saw him. Now, you start the book, and I want to get this out of the way. You start the book, My Dad is Funnier Than Your Dad, with a kind of painful recollection of the day in 2019 when he passed away. You were in the middle of a wardrobe fitting. You're a costume designer. Uh, tell us about that difficult day. Well, it, it kind of started... My my his wife, my former stepmom, um, decided a couple of years before that she didn't want me to see my dad anymore uh, or visit him or talk to the doctors or be involved in anything. Mm. And um, that was a battle um, because my dad was my best pal. And it wasn't mm. like I was, a, you know, every four years, happy Father's Day daughter. It was just we were I talked to him every day or saw him every day. Um, cause I'd rather hang out with him than anyone else I know. <laughs> so, um, so we were super close as close as it gets. And so that was, I was pretty rattled by that and it turned into a, an ugly lawsuit. And, um, I didn't have anything magical to cure him or to, uh, to save him. I just, my goal was just to help him suffer less. So, um, that, that morning, 
um, I got a call from a friend of mine or a text from a friend of mine in New York. And she said, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. And I said, what, what happened? I was get I was actually getting dressed to go see him. Um, oh my God. because he was, he was in a facility, but to find out, um, I actually pulled up the phone and, um, Fox news feed. Um, that's how I found out my dad had passed away. You're right about the loss. You said over the past year, I've watched helplessly as the father I loved succumbed to a terminal illness. Many people who've lost a loved one compare it to an abduction. Um, your dad had been suffering from dementia since 2018. So many people can relate to that pain of watching a loved one slip away from them. When did you first notice there was something wrong? Because I, I always found him so sharp, mm. Kelly. He was always so on his game and observant. And, you know, uh, the, 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 the insights and quips fell out of him like, like, you know, rain from the sky. Yes. Um, he had something called... Um, normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is uh, fluid. We all have this fluid running around our brains and our spinal cord, and uh, it, it's supposed to drain in and out as your body works, how it's supposed to, but his wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so it creates this pressure mm -hmm. in your head and fluid. And so that's what mm -hmm. kind of started it. And um, the dementia mm -hmm. part, it wasn't, you know, the. I think that just came from the disease he had, which was the hydrocephalus. So, Kelly, just, tell me, when did you first realize <laughs> that you were living with this comedic genius? I mean, <laughs> you, you were born and grew up around the time that the Carol Burnett show w was on, and your dad was such an integral part of that show. Well, you know, my parents raised us. Like, my dad's from Chagrin Falls, Ohio. My mom's from Dearborn. Uh, Michigan, yeah. and they kind of raised us like we were in the Midwest. So we had this great house and property filled with uh, tennis courts and volleyball and things and stuff and stuff everywhere. It was like a playground. So they, they, we never realized, I don't think, how how he impacted other people and how what a um, how people recognized him. I mean, yeah, if we went out to dinner, people would tell him, you know, graciously how much they loved him. And he would always, you know, talk to them and answer back or, and, you know, have a conversation with them. But it wasn't any much more than that because in the seventies in the Valley, it was kind of like being in the country. During one of what my interviews with your dad, I, I asked him what made the Carol Burnett show such a success. Here's what he told me. What was it about that group of people and that time that made the Carol Burnett show work. Well, we were all alcoholics, oh, so that, that good uh, start gave a certain relaxation to the show. Uh, I guess it was the rhythm of the show, and uh, Harvey and I were the best of friends. And mm -hmm. Carol is the most generous person you can imagine, mm -hmm. and so uh, we never had any problems with a star going. Uh, I'll say that, and uh -huh. she was always willing to share the show, and mm -hmm. I think that's what made it so uh, good. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily want to do the show, but she said, you know, <laughs> you better come in and Or she do was going to recall the yeah. loan. Yeah. He always had a joke, and you know, he told me later, the thing that really defined the show was love. They all loved each other. Did your dad ever talk mm -hmm. about those days and those people? Uh, I, I mean, his friends whom he got to play with every week. 
He did. And at, he, he did used to say how I'm the luckiest guy in the world to work with my friends every day. And to, you know, like you said, Carol was generous in the way that, you know, some people might not have wanted him or Harvey or anybody on the show to upstage them um, or to be funnier than them or prettier or, you know, sing better. She just, she was so, right. she let them do what they do best. What was it like working with Harvey Corman? What was it about his particular straight man to your <laughs> wacky, uncontrollable <laughs> self that made those scenes crackle and work? Well, uh, Harvey was probably the most intelligent person I have ever met. I mean, he huh. knew everything about everything, but the man could not tie his own shoes. Mm. So uh, I could put him on rather easily. And uh, I would tell him things that uh, had no way of being true, and uh, he would buy them. So uh, whenever I had the opportunity, I would stab him. Tell me about that relationship between your dad and Harvey Corman. I know he had a lot of close friends, but this was a different relationship. They just, they adored each other, and they're opposite. Um, you know, Harvey, their, their upbringing's a bit opposite. Their personalities are kind of opposite. They just, they traveled together. They, uh, they talked to each other. I think my dad liked to, tor to torture him also because Harvey was a little <laughs> bit um, paranoid. Their relationship, again, that affection and that, even that relationship played out so many times in the skits and even in, I saw them tour together. So it was, you know, it was still alive and well all those years after the Carol Burnett show. Now, yeah. uh, what was Tim, what was your, your father like at home? I mean, in the book, you describe Tim Conway as a bit of a prankster, a ringleader. He... Everything was an event to him. You know, it wasn't just, like I said, it wasn't just let's go swimming or let's watch a movie. Um, it was, okay, get your bathing suits on, get everybody in the neighborhood. Um, we were having a swim meet and he had teams. He had uh -huh. a trophy, like he would pick up uh, an old swim fin and cover it in aluminum foil and nail it to a piece <laughs> of wood. And that was the trophy. Um, he put lanes in the pool. Um, he had an Olympic podium, you know, for gold, silver, and bronze winners. Um, he had a barbecue wow. for the athletes after afterward uh, with announcements and photographers. And, you know, he just, he set it up so it was a fun afternoon wow. no matter what we were doing. And I he, have to show you this moment, Kelly. This is a little moment that we shared together. You'll probably remember this room. Watch. Now, during that interview, there was a little piece of video I want to share with you. Tim Conway referenced that he is a tailor. Um, I want to show you how he's used that skill in the room where we shot the interview. Take a look. Now, is this your normal attire when in this room? Yes. I come down here and relax. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a uh, bedspread made oh. out of the same uh, <laughs> material, so I'm comfortable wherever it's on. Kelly, he's wearing, he's wearing the wallpaper, you know, that he had the jacket that matched the wallpaper. He is I hilarious. He, he made that because he had extra fabric. He, his mom was a master seamstress, so she taught him how to sew, and they both taught me how to sew. Um, so he had extra fabric, so he took apart a jacket that he bought, and um, he made a jacket out of a pattern of a jacket that he took apart, and he wore it to dinner that night, so he converted and um, she 
uh, became his godmother, if, if, if you can believe that. Um, that was a, huh. a weird turn of events. Um, but so my mom is my dad's godmother. <laughs> um, well, but he, it, it sometimes works out that way. Yeah. Well, they, you know, you have to have, say volunteers, uh, and there was nobody right. else there. So she said, oh, I'll, I'll be it. Um, uh, and so it. we went to church every Sunday so they could kind of control us and mm. grab our arm if we were making paper airplanes out of the Bible. What did you learn about your dad after sitting down to write this memoir, through all the joy and the tears of it? And, and what yeah. do you most miss about Tim Conway? I learned that he kind of, and I honestly, I mean, I'm old, and throughout the years and what he taught us, was taught in a way, he and my mom, um, that was kind of sneaky. They were teaching us lessons without saying, okay, you can do this, you can't do that. In all these stories that I tell, he taught us how to um, be resourceful and handle situations without us knowing it. And, you know, it mm. took this long to realize it, um, uh, the lessons that they taught us. And, I mean, gosh, I miss him every day. He's just... Yeah. when I when I would go visit him on a set um I go dad I'm coming down for lunch where are you he goes oh I think I'm either at Universal or Warner Brothers I go well you need to tell me where you are he goes I don't know go, <laughs> go to the gate and keep go to the gate and keep talking until you find me and go okay um he goes because I don't even know what stage I'm on just find me so I would eventually find him and uh and I would be in the back you know, if a stage is dark and behind cameras and he was blocking or rehearsing something on stage, um, I would be, say hi to somebody or be in the blacks. And um, when my dad and I saw each other, when we locked eyes, it was the most magical. Well, he was, mm. a, he, he was a magical person. I mean, he was a wonderful, gentle man. And his yeah. comedy was always so sweet and uh, everybody was pulled in. You know, no matter where you came from, yeah. you could not resist his comedy. And I think that mm -hmm. came from his sweetheart. He always had that that uh, tender touch and a kindness about him. Yes. Uh, you know, and that's from the time I was growing up till the time I finally met him. I mean, he was a, he was a hero to me. So uh, and an American treasure. Um, my dad's Thanks. funnier than your dad. Growing up with Tim Conway in the funniest house in America by Kelly Conway is available now at bookstores everywhere. Kelly, thank you for being here. Merry Christmas to you. Thank and you your family. so much. And, uh, and, uh, I, I, and a, a special hello to your dad. I know he's watching. Thank you. Me too. Merry Christmas. My next guest first met on MTV's The Real World. They are now both seen on the Fox News Channel. They're the parents of nine children, and they're here tonight to talk about their favorite family traditions at Christmas time and their new New York Times best-selling book, number one bestseller, All-American Christmas. Welcome back to the program, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy and co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, Rachel Campos Duffy. Hey, guys. Great to see you all. Hi. You forgot to say our hey. other title. Friend of Raymond what, what, what Arroyo you, for a long well, time. Well, that's a side. That's a, you see that that that's in the demotion column. That's going to drag down your <laughs> reputation. But I want to start with your family Christmas traditions. Now, Sean, you come from an Irish American Catholic family in Wisconsin. Rachel, you're from a Hispanic family in Arizona. In the new book, All American Christmas, you share some of your family traditions. How did the two of you decide which to keep? from your respective families. I'll start with you, Rachel. 
Well, that it's such a great question because even though we're both Catholic, obviously culturally yeah. very different. Um, and so it just kind of, it, it, it was a process. Look, in his family, they do mincemeat pie. It's very complicated. Um, it's delicious, but not delicious enough for the work involved in making it. And so that was like oh. cut out. Um, but some of his family traditions, I instantly loved. And I'll tell you two of them because they're really great. Okay. The first was, I'm a military brat. I grew up with an artificial tree for obvious reasons. I lived all over the world. And that is just a complicated thing. And my parents never grew up with real trees. And so I just, artificial tree was the way it was. We even had the, the, the remember the old metal, like almost like tinfoil yes. ones. I remember having you one of those. You kill yourself on them. Yeah. Yes, you could. You get like a cut on your finger. Um, so when I got to Wisconsin, one of the first things we did, the first year we got married, is his mom and and Sean, we went down. And his mom actually cut down the tree, uh, which in the middle of the woods, um, it was a wild scene. And I just thought it was amazing. And we've never stopped cutting down our own Christmas tree in the woods. And I, I love it. The second thing that the Duffies do that I thought was beautiful and I wanted to keep is the Duffies sit on the top of the stairs on Christmas morning. They're not allowed to come down yeah. and they have to sing away in a manger before they come down wow. to open their presents as a kind of a last ditch effort on the parents' part to remind the children of what the Christmas season is truly and, about. And Raymond, to that point, oh. the parents had to go downstairs and get some coffee first. Yeah, caffeine first. And then first. they come back and they sing Away in the Manger. And <laughs> it is the worst rendition of Away in the Manger that you will ever hear. Yeah, we're not good But singers. we sing right. it and uh, with with great gusto. And again, I think it's important. I mean, this, we all know this. We're, we, we, you got to keep the meaning of the season. And in this, in this culture, it's sometimes hard to do that with all these other pressures on our kids. And it's our job as parents to make sure they fully understand why we are celebrating Christmas, which is the birth of Christ. I agree. No, I agree. And, and look, it, you mentioned it. All these distractions take us away. And in some ways, some of the things that are part of the secular Christmas season pull you entirely from the real purpose of, the, of this moment, the, the coming of the Christ child, God made man. And we get confused about that. But I, I love those little um, family traditions that you can underscore it. Um, though, Sean, I think you may want to record your rendition of Away in the Manger this year for the podcast. I'll pay for that. Now, <laughs> yours are not the only <laughs> Christmas traditions highlighted in this book. There are some other folks featured. Rachel, tell us about the other contributors to All-American Christmas and how you chose them. Well, you know, there's a lot of them. Um, you're, they're all the people you love. Dana Perino, uh, Charles um, Payne. Uh, we have Maria Bartiromo, who tells wonderful stories of growing up in New York City and Brooklyn as an Italian-American family running a, you know, a restaurant. So you get this feel for who they are um, and and mm. what brought them to to to, um, to Fox News? And what I like is that you know, in a, in a time when our culture, um, our, our our Catholic Christian culture is under attack, um, we have to lean into it. We have to fight back, and we have to celebrate it. And what I love is the traditions that we have were passed to us, you know, from one generation to the next. But if we don't pass it to our kids, the generations stop. There's, there, there's, there's, yeah. there's no passing of the tradition. And what I love is how everyone, you know, continues to meld their, their, their spouse and their, you know, traditions together so they can pass it on to the next generation. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think that emphasis on the visual 
and audio reminders of the season, as well as the great foods that we enjoy. All of that yeah. reinforces uh, uh, that religious belief that is at the heart of, of this season. Now, we, we were talking about, you talked about traveling around, uh, Rachel, as uh, in a military family. And tell me about the tradition your family had vis-a-vis -vis nativity scenes, how they would populate them. Yeah, so my mother is from Spain, my father is Mexican-American, and the nativity scene um, is very important to our Hispanic culture, and, and it's it's something that is very central. In fact, if there's a Walmart near a Hispanic community, you're going to see more religious um, Christmas items. You're going to see nativity yep. scenes being sold and things like that. Uh, my mother... Uh, made the entire town of Bethlehem. And it isn't until I got older that I could really appreciate, you know, that she had to pack this up and move it around the world wherever we were. But it was giant. It was the whole town. It was, you know, rivers wow. and mountains and the caves with with the with the shepherds and the angel appearing in a tree next to it and Herod's castle. And she could tell us the whole story of Christmas through this beautiful, as you say, visual um, thing that, I mean, I just, Loved it so much. So can I can I make one no, point, Raymond? So sure. Yeah, just one of the so our our family we put up our nativity scene and my mother made sure the baby Jesus wasn't in there until Christmas morning and it was always a great honor yep. for whatever child got to put the baby Jesus in the manger in the morning. But you look back to those again to the mangers and the figurines how how it, it captivates kids and how cool yeah. it is. Now I lost out on that tradition. Rachel gets the big the the the, the big scene and <laughs> mine I was a little better. Yeah, bigger, bigger, but, better. Bigger, better. <laughs> well, you had the you had the Metropolitan Opera version. Sean and I had the kind of Walmart version. You know, got a little <laughs> reduced. But uh, but we like you. We have little nativity scenes all over the house that I've collected as yes. I've traveled. I have some from Mexico, yep. some from Italy. We kind of put them all over the place, it, yep. it, and that's a sweet tradition too. And anytime, Rachel, you talked about it. It's Christmas is a beautiful time, not only to remember the Holy Family, but our own families and how that, you know, when you have something that your great grandmother or your grandmother used or that was part of their family tradition and you keep it moving, it does carry all of those memories and people along with it. And that is part of Christmas as well. Now, speaking of nativity scenes, this year's nativity display at the Vatican is inspired by Peru's indigenous communities. The statues of Joseph and Mary, as well as the three kings, are dressed in traditional bright, multicolored garments from one of Peru's indigenous communities. There are llamas displayed. The angel is dressed in a traditional Andean clothing. She's playing a flute in one hand and banging a drum in the other. The nativity was chosen to mark Peru's 200th anniversary of independence. Sean, uh, do you worry that we blurred the lines here from traditional Christmas iconography, and does this go too far? Well, you know, it's interesting because it seems like every culture really does uh, uh, adopt the Holy Family, right? You know, if you look at, mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes when you see pictures of Jesus, he's very white, right, in our culture, but yep. he probably wasn't very white. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we all yeah. kind of do that. But I do think, you know, you want to try to stay as true as you can to what the scene would have looked like um, in the manger, you know, and, you know, I don't know that llamas were there, Raymond. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I think I think you can cross some, were. I think you can cross some lines, but also I think it's really important that 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 Jesus come home, that Mary and Joseph come home to every culture. 
and that they adopt it and yeah. they embrace it. And as long as they, mm-hmm. you know, understand the meaning of the season and they take it into their culture and it's in their hearts, that's really what matters. Um, now, if there's yeah. other messaging that that someone is trying to make with the nativity scene, that is mm-hmm. that's a different problem. As long as we are saying, this is this is touching us here. This is meaningful. Yeah. This is. Again, this is uh, this well, is the start of it all. We don't get Easter unless we have Christmas. This is the beginning. That's what's yeah. important. Hey, Raymond, wasn't no, it I, that I a, a year ago or two years ago that the Vatican had a really sort of, they almost look like robots or something, wasn't that? Yes, last year. I, that was the spaceman. You know, that was the horrible. Space man. I think this is a and step up for like a spark plug. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was horrible. It was so like like it, I I didn't feel like there was any humanity in it to be honest. And I think that's right. the pro- that's the problem with that. This one doesn't bother me so much. I frankly I grew up in 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 Peru as one of the places that my father was oh. was stationed when we lived overseas. And um so mm. I I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Um but but no, yeah, I, I, agree I, with I you. think yeah. Yeah, it's a look. It's a vast improvement over last year with the with the spark plug angel, which was only universal and touched you if you were a Buick. But this right. is yeah. so this is a, definitely a step up. Now, Sean, yeah. how important is it to remind the public uh, that uh, of of the sacrality of the season in a in a public way and in a public space. You know, I'm thinking, I, I, I just drove by the plaza last week when I was in New York, and uh, the Catholic League has their nativity up in the crosswalk there, which they put up annually. How important are those kind of very public displays? You, Priscilla, I, I think it's I important it. for all of us to to make sure that we're, we're publicly Catholic and, and, and publicly Christian. So, I mean, I'll, I'll go as far as to go. When we go to dinner, you know, we say a prayer before a meal at home, do we not do it when we, when we go to eat? No, we're going to say our prayer, you know, in a packed restaurant as a Catholic family. And I think the same thing is true if you have platforms like you and Rachel and I do on Fox. It's important to actually um, not be afraid of our faith and to talk about it when asked and when appropriate. And, and that's why we thought this Christmas book was so good. That you know, goes, you know, We love Christmas. We love this time of year. We love our faith. And we want to celebrate it. And it's part of leaning into that celebration publicly. And, you know, here's what I think is interesting, Raymond. It's not just in the faith, but it's also in politics that sometimes people can be um, afraid to step out and and say certain things or do certain things. And they need people to lead. They need people to be bold. They need people to, you know, wear it, you know, on their lapel pin. And I think this is what we're doing with this book is going, we're leaning into Christmas. You touched on this a moment ago. We've seen this rise in anti-Catholic, anti-Christian vandalism across the country. Earlier this month, a masked man took a hammer to Our Lady of Fatima, a statue in front of the Basilica of the National Shrine in D.C. Uh, The D.C. police released video showing the man smashing the hands and the face and the crown of Our Lady. Uh, Even the Fox News Christmas tree in Manhattan was set afire. Uh, the suspect was arrested and then released. Sean, to what do you attribute this religious and even holiday vandalism? Well, I think that if you look over the course of the last decades, as we've taken, you know, God out of our schools, we've taken Christmas out, we have we have no holiday programs and holiday trees. And, you know, th- there's there's been a concerted effort, as Rachel just mentioned, uh, to attack the Christian, the Catholic faith. Um, and when you do that, all of a sudden it becomes okay as part of our culture to then vandalize, whether it's their churches or their statues or their nativity scenes or burn their Christmas trees, it becomes more acceptable in a society that doesn't value the the faithful people that live in that society. And again, this hasn't just happened over 
the last couple of years. I think we've allowed this over the course of decades to yes. happen. And frankly, I don't think it's too late to save the country, but we should have done far more in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s to fight back on this. Mm. Before we go, I wanted you to take a look at something. A family in South Africa made this rather shocking discovery in their Christmas tree, guys. A boom slang. One of the country's most venomous snakes was, was wrapped in the branches. So my question, now I know you mentioned earlier that you cut down your own tree. Should you have a real or a fake Christmas tree, particularly given this shocking revelation in South Africa? Sean, you first. We have a story about it. Well, Sean, you go. So, so, Raymond, I, I don't know if you, if, you, if you cut your Christmas tree down, usually at like some kind of a tree farm, and you'll, you'll take your tree up to where you're going to pay for it. Everyone who's done this knows they have the tree yeah. shaker. It puts in there and it yes. shakes the tree and gets all the debris off it. It probably would have shaken the 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 snake out or the rats <laughs> out or the you know whatever varmints are in your tree, right? But if you're out in the woods and cut it down, who knows what you're going to bring into your into your house and your Christmas tree? Right. So we we, we had one one uh, participant who told us a story about uh, about this incident. Rachel, go. Well, no, no, I was going to let you tell it because you love okay. he loves this story. It's a Jesse Waters story. It's okay. in the book. You're going to love it. So Jesse Waters says he goes out with his family with his little boy to, and, and cuts down a Christmas tree. He's in New York. He goes to Pennsylvania. They cut it down. They put it on the top of the car, wrap it up, bring it home, put the tree up. They go to bed. Go to bed. The next morning. No, no, in the middle of the night. He's like at, yeah, like three in the morning, they wake up and the cat is going crazy inside the house. And it's chasing a oh. squirrel around the house <laughs> that he says was in the Christmas tree. And we thought this is right out of Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon. And he, he said, said I true. swear to God, this happened. And um, you know what? That's he why said he, Jesse told us that it was an illegal squirrel. Illegal squirrel in the tree. <laughs> an interloper. And it, well, I read a story of, a, of you see, you can't shake ants out of a tree if they're in the if they're in the the the, the main the, yeah. trunk of the tree, Sean. And that has happened to people too, where they're it's infested with ants, and the ants come out once it's in your home. So it's a fake tree only in the Arroyo House. No real trees in the right. house. No, if no, no. You, go to, you don't know if what's you go in the to swamp God's here. Country, if you go to God's country in Wisconsin, they don't have. I've I, 22 years we've been getting down. We've never seen an ant in a tree. It's clean out there. Oh, the trees are it's healthy. It's too cold They're for the ants, Rachel. That's why. But here's the, but, okay. But, but we're gonna leave it have, there. Raymond, Raymond, one more point. The fake tree is yes. the benefit because you don't lose needles. And if so, we go the 12 days of Christmas. We go to Epiphany, and by Epiphany, we're losing so many needles off the tree. Right. Uh, <laughs> it becomes problematic. There's more on the ground water. than on the tree. So you do win on the on the fake tree. I'm glad no I've, I've converted. I've converted another family to artificial <laughs> trees. <laughs> Sean no, and Rachel Duffy, thank you both for being with me. Uh, All American Sorry. Christmas by Rachel and Sean is available now in bookstores everywhere and online. And Rachel and I are going to be together on New Year's Eve. She'll be hosting Fox's New Year's Eve coverage in Nashville. I'll be in New Orleans, and we're going to have a good time. So, I'll be Rachel, Sean, kid. Merry Christmas. Sean will be babysitting. <laughs> You, you and Rebecca can exchange recipes and watch us. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Before we go, I have some sad news to report. Best-selling novelist Anne Rice, who was a friend of mine, passed away earlier this week. She died on December 11th from complications following a stroke. Best known for her gothic novel, Interview with a Vampire, and the over 40 books that followed, 
Rice's work wrestled with faith and its absence in the world. Even her vampire characters were caught between heaven and hell, tortured by their own existence. In her personal life, Rice struggled with faith as well. She abandoned the Catholicism of her youth, becoming an atheist, but upon returning to her beloved New Orleans, she had a reconversion to the Catholic faith. And in 2005, she alienated many of her fans when she wrote the spiritually powerful novel, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt. It is a beautiful fictional take on Jesus' boyhood and his relationship with his mother. In recent years, Rice walked away from organized Christianity, but she remained, quote, committed to Jesus Christ. And I know through private conversation, she maintained a personal piety. Here she is discussing faith. You know, the Romans were ferociously against everything coming out of the East. They were suspicious of the worshipers of Sibel. They regarded cults from Egypt as evil. You know, they didn't like that stuff entering rational Roman life. They didn't like it at all. They had a great resistance to what they considered the superstition of the East. Yet here comes this cult started by this Nazarene who's crucified, and within 110 years, it's an international religion. And within about 200 more years, paganism is brought down all over the ancient world. Now, how in the hell could that happen, I asked myself, and I never found a satisfactory answer. And the more I studied the life of Christ and the more I studied the teachings of Christ, the more I felt an immense mystical opening to this religion. By mystical, I mean can't describe it rationally. But I felt an opening to this. I, be I began to be deeply obsessed with the Incarnation, the story of this monotheistic God becoming man in the form of Jesus, being crucified, dying, rising from the dead, going back to heaven with his body, and then this monotheism exploding into the ancient world and bringing down polytheism. And I still don't have all the answers at all. Nobody will ever have the answers as to why this happened. But to me, there's no religion quite like it. I am told Anne received last rites, and she will be laid to rest at her family plot here in New Orleans. I ask you to join me in praying for the repose of her soul. May Anne Rice rest in peace and in the light of the Lord. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching Christmas special next week. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.